0: Good morning to all of you. It's great to see you. Our sermon text for this morning is found in the book of Acts chapter 9. The book of Acts chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. But before we begin Acts 9, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for your word and for how you show us All that you've done in order to bring us where we are now. We're grateful that as we study your word this morning, we are left with the impression of your great sovereignty, of your great power. We pray that, Lord, as we study this familiar text, you would help us to walk away more in awe of you for all that you've done. More impressed with your sovereignty And Lord, we pray that you would receive all the glory and all the honor as we reflect in thankfulness everything that you've done to get us up to this point. May you be glorified and honored through the preaching of your word. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Well, just out of sheer curiosity, I wanted to see which persons in the Bible people today generally regard as important. So I did what most people do when they want to find answers to these things. I googled it. And I found a list from two authors, and I'm by no means trying to endorse these authors, but they came up with a list, and I feel like the people that they highlighted were pretty interesting. The list they arranged in chronological order, so they had Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, Isaiah, Mary, Jesus, and Paul. That's not a bad list. If you think about it, if you were limited to choosing the 11 most important people in the Bible, who you'd, who you'd list, there are probably not too many people that you would take out of that initial list. But as you probably guessed, as even you looked at your Bibles, you see the chapter heading, you see chapter 9, we're, prob- we're going to be looking at primarily Saul this morning, or the man who eventually becomes known as Paul. He wrote 13, maybe 14 of the letters in the New Testament, and so we will be focusing our attention on him a little bit this morning. But as many of you know, if you've been here with us the last four weeks, the main character of the story in the book of Acts is not necessarily Paul, and it's not necessarily Peter either, but it is Jesus Christ. The mission of the church has been from the very beginning to be a witness to all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. However, if you were to read the book of Acts all the way up until this point, up until chapter 9, you'll realize that the gospel has not really gone out of Israel just yet. It's left Jerusalem and has gone to some of the surrounding areas around Jerusalem, but it has yet to go far enough to be considered the remotest part of the earth. In order for the gospel to go where it needs to go, Jesus still needs to call a special chosen servant who can uniquely take on Christ's mission to the ends of the earth. But first, Jesus needs to make Saul the man he needs to be before the gospel can go out to the world. And additionally, the rest of the church must begin to see that the gospel going out to the rest of the world has always been a part of God's plan. They need to see that. They need to be convinced of that so that they will understand in greater detail the mission that God has given them. So in order for all these things to happen, three events must occur. And this morning we'll examine three events that Jesus uses in order to pave the way for salvation to go to the Gentiles. Three events Jesus used in order to pave the way for salvation to go to the Gentiles. The first event that we're going to look at, the first event that Jesus uses in order to pave the way for salvation to go to the Gentiles, is the conversion of Saul. The conversion of Saul, verses 1 to 2. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul was so violently opposed to Christians, so hostile towards those who taught the name of Christ, that the very breath he breathes is described as breath of threat and murder against the disciples his hostility towards Christians and his zeal for what he believed to be right doctrine at that time was so strong that he felt like he needed to do something. So he goes to the high priest and he asks for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that he could stop Christians from spreading the gospel. As we see, these letters say that he has the right to arrest both men and women if they are found belonging to the way, which is the original term used to describe those who followed Jesus, the original term to describe Christianity. We don't have to go back to that term. We don't have to refer to ourselves as those who follow the way because we are known as Christians and that's okay. It's just the original term that they use. Now, while it is true that the Romans were ultimately in charge of ruling over Israel, they allowed for the religious leaders to govern themselves in certain manners, especially religious matters. Therefore, the high priest had every right to hand out arrest warrants for those men and women who were believers in Christ. Damascus was a city that was 135 miles north-northeast of Jerusalem. The equivalent for us would be if you were to continue five miles past Placerville on your way to Lake Tahoe. Now, some of you don't even know where Placerville is, right? But the point is it's 135 miles northeast of Jerusalem, and... Paul's zeal and his hatred for Christianity was such that he was willing to travel that long of a distance in order to try and bring an end to a movement that had no direct bearing, no threat whatsoever to the Jewish faith in Jerusalem because he hated it so much. He viewed Christianity as a threat, as an abomination. And he was willing to go on a mission to eradicate it before it could go any further, And as Saul was getting closer to Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. That this was genuinely a divine act of God is confirmed by Paul later, as he recounts in Acts 22, 6, that this light that flashed around him flashed around him around noontime. So in the bright Middle Eastern sun, at noontime, as the light is already shining down upon him, this lightning flash, these flashes of lightning going on around him. And not only that, but he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, he recognizes from this lightning flash that is a divine act of God and recognizing that what is happening is something from heaven, he falls to the ground in reverence. And as he hears that voice calling out to him, he understands that the one speaking to him must have authority, must have sovereignty, because clearly everything that is happening around him is from God. And so for this reason, he asks, who are you, Lord? Now Saul Is using an honorific, a term of respect, as he falls to the ground in reverence. He doesn't know yet that he's talking to Jesus Christ, but what he does know is that he is talking to a representative, an authoritative figure from God. He knows that he has to respect this figure, and so when Saul hears and and hears the voice, he understands I have to pay attention. And what Saul hears and sees next changes the rest of his life as he hears the voice say. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Notice that though Saul is persecuting the church, Jesus tells Saul that he is actually persecuting him. And this is not merely because Jesus associates with his church so much that he feels like any attack on him is an attack. Uh, Sorry, any attack on the church is an attack on him. It's not like if someone were to come up to you and speak evil of your family, you get offended and say, whoa, you can't say that to me because any attack of my family is an attack on me. It's not necessarily that. When Jesus says that Saul is persecuting him, he's speaking about a spiritual reality that those who believe in him and repent of their sins are one with him. When we, as a church, talk about being a part of the body of Christ, where all the members of of the body represent Christ, we're not talking about a sociological movement that says we are one just because we decided to meet in one building, and we are all devoted to the same cause. What we're talking about is the spiritual reality of Acts 2, when believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are filled with Christ's Spirit. They are made into one new humanity, a humanity that is not defined by Adam and his failure, but a humanity that is defined by Jesus and his righteousness. You see, our sin nature is inherited from Adam because he represented all of humanity as our corporate head, kind of like how the president becomes the representation of an entire nation, Adam's failure, Adam's sin, led to that sin being passed down from generation to generation such that every single human being outside of Jesus has been afflicted with this sin nature. We all have it. And if the person who represented all of humanity doomed us all because of his sin, because of his failure, we need If we're going to get salvation, we need a new corporate head, a new man to represent us all, to pave the way for that sin nature to be dealt with once for all. And Jesus is that man, the ultimate man, because he, being 100% God and 100% man, is everything that we were ever supposed to be before the Lord. He is everything that we were ever supposed to be. We, in our sin, have failed to be what God wants us to be. But because of Christ's death and resurrection, because he died on the cross in our place, when we believe in him and repent of our sins, we become one with him. And though we are deficient on our own, when we are one with him, we then become everything that we were supposed to be. Everything that we're supposed to be because we are united with Him. So when Jesus tells Saul that persecuting the church is also persecuting Him, He's not just saying something nice that's supposed to make you feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. It's not just a nice sentiment. It's not just Jesus making a statement about how he feels about the church. It is the reality that the church uniquely represents Christ because we are all actually one with him. And this is why, brothers and sisters, we implore you, to live righteously, to examine your hearts, to see whether there's any sin in your life, any part of your life that dishonors Christ. Because you being one with him actually means something. It's not something that we just say, right? But it actually means something. When we believe in him and repent of our sins, we are baptized into his body. We represent him to the rest of the world as an individual and as a church together Christians, we shouldn't be righteous and loving because Christianity has provided us with a good set of morals, a good set of rules by which we are to live. We should strive to reflect the same nature as our God because we are a picture of him to the rest of the world. We represent him physically, to the rest of the world. If we want to bring Him glory, if we want to bring Him honor, we must accurately reflect Him in our lives. Which is why we need to work hard to become more like Christ. We reflect Him in everything. So when we study those attributes of God, when we hear about what God is like, those are the characteristics, those are the attributes that we try and imitate in our lives, because we want for other people, when they look at us, to see a picture of who God is, so that they can be impressed with, not us, but with God. They can see that there's a hope, there's a reason for the hope that we have. Now, returning to Saul on the road to Damascus, the men who were traveling with Saul it says in verse 7, they stood speechless. They heard a voice, but they saw no one. They saw no one. They couldn't see what Saul saw. They heard the voice, but they couldn't see anything. They couldn't see the resurrected Christ in his glory. And there is so much that we could go into here. We really don't have the time. Uh, but suffice it to say, what Saul sees here on the road to Damascus It sets him on a trajectory to make the impact that God intends for him to make. What Saul sees here on the road to Damascus is what drives his personal evangelism. It drives his writing ministry. It drives his preaching ministry. If you ever wondered why Saul was so motivated to get the gospel out, this is why. What he sees here changes his life in a way where he cannot go back. He is dominated by this vision, and that sets him forth. It keeps him going. Every single time he got close to death, he got back up, and he kept on preaching. You wonder why? Because he saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. He understood the mission that he had to go to. He understood that if he is all about the glory of God, he cannot stop defending the glory of God. He cannot stop preaching the gospel. So he gets up and he keeps going because that glory is what drives him forward. And so Saul, this vision that Saul sees, it is everything. It is everything. And it changes his life. But after the vision stops, Saw he gets up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And so leading him by the hand, his companions brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. What he sees, what he sees sends him into meditation, sends him into thinking about what he has just saw in the resurrected Christ. And so this blindness that he has. This blindness that he manifests even though his eyes were open it's an illustration of what he was Saul was spiritually blind he could not see the truth and so his physical blindness represented the spiritual rea- the spiritual reality that was in his heart he was spiritually blind but he could see now he can't even see so this led him into thinking more about what he had just saw. And so what we'll see later is that even during this time of fasting, he also saw another vision from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, following Saul's encounter with Jesus, Luke introduces us to a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And this is not the Ananias that we were introduced to last week because that Ananias is dead. This is another man named Ananias. Okay. This Ananias, he also receives a vision from Jesus. And Jesus tells him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Verse 12. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in And lay his hand on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Naturally, when Ananias hears God calling him, telling him to go to Saul, he is really skeptical. Because he has heard the reports. He knows Saul's reputation. Saul's reputation precedes him. He knows that Saul came to Damascus on a mission to get to, from the high priest, to arrest all who believe in Jesus Christ. But Jesus says, Yeah, I know. I know. Right? But then he says, Go, verse 15, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Saul, whose Greek name is Paul, is identified by Jesus as a chosen instrument of his to bear his name before the Gentiles, kings, and sons of Israel. Jesus is giving Saul a unique role, a unique ministry of witness. While it is true that other Christians do suffer for Jesus' namesake, Saul's suffering for Jesus' namesake is unique because his role is slightly different. He's the trailblazer. He's the pioneer. He's the one who will suffer so that the gospel goes out to the Gentiles, so that the church understands The gospel needs to go out of Israel. It needs to go to the rest of the world. And that's why Saul's ministry, Saul's suffering, is different than the suffering of other Christians. He uniquely bears witness to Christ. He uniquely bears witness to Christ. And so understanding the importance of Saul... Ananias is comforted by Jesus' words, and he goes to Saul, and he heals him, saying in verse 17, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you are coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. The fact that Ananias even calls Saul Brother Saul indicates that sometime between the road of Damascus and Ananias' arrival, Saul has placed his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Ananias is here to do what Jesus told him to do. And he told Saul this too. In an unrecorded vision he told Jesus told Saul that a man named Ananias would come and heal him. And so Ananias is here to heal Saul so that Saul can see so that he can regain his sight, but also so that he can authenticate Saul's conversion. And we see that as Saul is being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now a quick note on the Holy Spirit. In the beginning of the church, the Holy Spirit did not always indwell believers automatically like he does now because it was a time of transition. So today, when we believe in Christ, when we repent of our sins, the Holy Spirit lives in you right away. He dwells in you right away. Christ gives him to us right away so that we can worship God, so we can live righteously, so we can discern God's will. The helper is given to help us spiritually. But in the early church, at times, Jesus would delay sending the Holy Spirit to indwell believers so that the apostles could see how God was working, so they could see how God was advancing his salvation plan. For instance, in Acts eight fourteen, when the gospel goes out to the Samaritans through Philip, the apostles, they send Peter and John to see what God has been doing in Samaria, They had heard that the gospel went to the Samaritans from Philip, but they needed to see this for themselves. So God purposefully allowed for the Holy Spirit to be delayed in coming to the Samaritan converts to prove to the church, yes, God has indeed saved the Samaritans too. It's not just for Jews who live in Samaria, but it is for the Samaritans as well. And so in order to prove that to the apostles, in order to prove that this was indeed all that God had planned, God waited for Peter and John to get there, to pray before he allowed for those believers to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that he can help them see the gospel goes to them too. And so for this reason, in a similar way, Saul receives the Holy Spirit from Ananias, As Ananias lays his hands on him. It's not like Ananias is a special person who can lay the who can give the Holy Spirit to people as he lays his hands on people. It's not that. But the Holy Spirit himself is making it clear that though Saul went to Damascus in order to stop the spread of Christianity from going any further, he is now a believer, a chosen instrument of Jesus who will spread the gospel rather than stopping it. And so immediately. After Ananias lays his hands on Saul and prays for him, something like scales falls from Saul's eyes, and he's healed. He regains his sight. He gets up. He's baptized, and he's strengthened to do his ministry. Saul's conversion is an amazing testimony of what God can do, what Jesus can do in a life. Jesus took a man who had murderous intent, Towards Christians, a man who wanted to stop the spread of Christianity, and he changed his heart and had that very same man turn around and be the chosen instrument through whom the gospel spreads. And that leads us to our second event that Jesus uses in order to pave the way for salvation to go to the Gentiles, and that is the beginning of Saul's ministry. The beginning of Saul's ministry. So Saul stays with the disciples in Damascus, and verse 20 tells us that immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. The people who are hearing Saul proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, they know exactly who Saul is. They know exactly why he was in Damascus. And so as they're hearing him preach this new message, they're amazed, and they ask, is this not he? Who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? They recognized who Saul is, they recognized what his mission is. But Saul proves himself converted and proves the power of God in his life. Because verse 22 says he kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Saul was preaching Jesus as the Christ in the synagogues, and he wasn't just standing out in the public square and yelling out, Jesus is the son of God, believe. No, he was using the scriptures, all of the Old Testament to prove that Jesus truly was the Christ. So what we see is that Jesus, he takes all of that religious training that Saul had as a Pharisee, he uses that talent, he uses that knowledge to advance his cause. He repurposes all of Saul's training in order to make Saul useful for the gospel, useful for his glory. And so the fact that Saul kept on confounding the Jews shows that when you understand the scriptures rightly, the Scriptures all point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul was not just dominating these people as if they had no understanding of the Scriptures. Right? These, these Jews, they had religious knowledge. They had religious training. They understood the Old Testament. And yet the fact that Saul was able to continually confound them with the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is the Christ shows that the authority has all been transferred to the church. God's authority has all been transferred over to the church. You think you know the scriptures? You think you know how God works? You don't. You don't, because Saul understands the scriptures, not you. That's the point. Right? And it also shows, it shows the Jewish. People there, that unless you believe in Christ, your religiousness, your religiosity does nothing because Christ alone saves. The power of Jesus' name is once again shown supreme. And so, after many days had elapsed, the Jews realized that they could not stop Saul, they could not outreason him, they could not use the scriptures enough to disprove him. So, their only strategy to stop the gospel from going forward. To stop Saul was to kill him. It says they, the Jews, verse 23, plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. This desire to kill Saul demonstrates the irrational hatred that the Jews had towards the gospel. Basically, their thought was, if you cannot stop the gospel from being taught, if you cannot stop the gospel from being advanced, kill the messenger to stop the message. However, God, he protects Saul from their desire to kill him. And he delivers Saul from having... Uh, from being killed by the, the Jews in Damascus by having the disciples lower him from the city wall in a basket. Right? Even though Saul appeared to be trapped, Jesus, he protects his servant by providing an unconventional opening for Saul to escape. Saul very well could have died. Or You saw how intent the Jews were to, to kill Saul. They were watching the gates. They were looking out for him. They had an APB out for him. They were looking to kill him. They were looking for any opportunity they could to kill him. And yet God still provides a way. God still provides a way to deliver his servant. The mission is not complete. So Jesus, even though it seems like his servant was trapped, keeps his servant alive and sends him forward. So verse 26, when he came, when Saul came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. So upon leaving Damascus, Saul returns to Jerusalem. And naturally, now that he's a believer in Jesus Christ, he's trying to go to church. He's trying to go have fellowship with the disciples. But they were afraid of him because they remembered all that he had previously done. To believers. This word, trying to associate with the disciples, indicates that Saul was continually trying, repeatedly trying to associate with the disciples. But they, because of their fear of him, were not letting him near them. But in verse 27, our good friend Barnabas reappears and he continues to do what he does best. It says Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. You see, Barnabas, he appears once again in order to move God's plan forward through a small action by confirming that Saul was truly converted. When we last saw Barnabas in Acts 4, at the end of Acts 4, he understood the mission of the church. He understood the importance of unity within the church. And so he sold his land and gave all the money to the church to prove to the world that the church is all about Jesus Christ. And because we're all about Jesus Christ, we care for one another's needs. Here again, he uses another small action, the the presenting of Saul to the apostles to demonstrate that this is God's man. This is the man that we need to pay attention to. This is God's chosen servant. We have to hear what he has to say. We have to welcome him in. Barnabas' testimony was instrumental in helping the apostles see that there was no undercover ruse from Saul to find out who Christians were by pretending to be a Christian so that he could persecute them later. Jesus really did meet with Saul, on the road to Damascus. Saul really did preach Christ in Damascus. And so because Barnabas is a trustworthy individual, the apostles and the rest of the church, they welcome Saul into their number. He's now an official member of the church who goes around Jerusalem with them freely, and he speaks out boldly in the name of Christ. And speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord means that Saul continued to preach and prove that Jesus was the Christ, that he does have power to save people from their sins, all from the Old Testament. And what we see is that Saul, he was talking to and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. That demonstrates a fundamental shift in Saul's thinking. Saul describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Hebraistic Jew. He's a very traditional Jew. He spoke Hebrew. He held to all the Hebrew traditions. He kept all the laws. The Hellenistic Jews were Jews who were ethnically Jewish but culturally Greek. In a sense, it's kind of like with the Chinese people. If you have the first generation who immigrates over here, they retain their Chinese identity. They speak Chinese. Their culture is very, very Chinese. They hold on to that very tightly. But what we see with the successive generations, that they start to lose their Chinese ethnic identity. They become more American than they are Chinese, right? And some of you, you understand what that means. It means you're shamed by your parents, right? What's wrong with you? You're a terrible Chinese person. I'm not Chinese. I'm American, right? You're a disgrace. And it was kind of like that with the Jews, and the Hel- with, the, with the Hebraistic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, except for it was a little bit worse because the Hebraistic Jews, they looked at the Hellenistic Jews and they said, not only are you a disgrace, you're a traitor. You're a traitor to your people. You're a traitor to your faith. We don't care about you. You are separate from us. And before his conversion, Saul's mindset regarding the Hellenistic Jews would have been exactly that. I'm not going to associate with you. You're a traitor. You've betrayed your own people. I want nothing to do with you. But now that he's been converted, Saul begins reaching out to these Hellenistic Jews because he's picking up where Stephen left off. Remember, Saul was there when Stephen was martyred. He was one of the ones who heartily approved of Stephen's martyrdom. But what God demonstrates here is that Stephen's death was absolutely necessary. You see, before Stephen was martyred, the gospel had not left Jerusalem. It was still in Jerusalem. They had not gone out anywhere. Stephen's death is the catalyst that spreads the believers out. And that would have been a huge problem if the church that's scattered stopped preaching the gospel. Or because there, if the gospel stops being preached and the church is scattered, hope is lost. The church cannot continue. The gospel will not go forth. But that's not what happened. The church that scattered, they went to different places. But they continued to preach the gospel wherever they went. And when Saul becomes a believer, he picks up the mission of Stephen. The mission doesn't stop with Stephen's death. The mission doesn't stop because Stephen was martyred. It goes forth. It continues on, and he gets even stronger. And that's why Saul picks up on that mission, and he continues it. It goes forward. The gospel must be proclaimed to all, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of culture. And Saul, he understands that now. Now, again, the Jews want to put Saul to death. And when the brethren in Jerusalem hear of it, they bring him to Caesarea. And they send him out to Tarsus. Not just because they want to protect him from the Jews who wanted his life, but also because they understood if this man is the chosen instrument that needs to go to the Gentiles, he can't stay here. He has to go out. The apostles, they have to stay at home base. They have to stay at home base. They need to stay in Jerusalem because they are holding out hope to Israel, saying there is salvation from sin in Jesus but Saul, being the chosen instrument to the Gentiles, must go forward. He has to go out, and so he starts that ministry from his hometown of Tarsus. Now, without any more fear of a leader like the unconverted Saul, who was bent on destroying the church, along with a change in Roman leadership, the church throughout all Judea, Samaria, And Galilee, they enjoyed peace and being built up by God and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were able to continue to increase. Jesus converts the biggest threat to the church and makes him their greatest asset, thus demonstrating that there is no more power in the Jewish religious system. Though the church is rightly in awe of him, having a healthy respect for him, that is God, they are also comforted by the Holy Spirit. And as a result, Jesus continues to grow his church. Jesus actually can change the facts on the ground so that his word can go forth and so that those who are his will come to saving faith in him. Even if their past as an unbeliever was terrible, the hope of the gospel is still There, you look at Saul's life. You see all that he's done. The fact that he's essentially a murderer. All that he's done has been forgiven in Christ. Saul hated the church. He wanted the church to be destroyed. He took steps to kill those who are Christians. Yet he was not beyond God's redemption. He was not beyond God's redemption. He was not beyond God's forgiveness. God softened Saul's heart and adopted him into his own family, and then made Saul useful. And so, no matter what you've done, there is no sin out there that is so egregious that Christ's power is not strong enough to forgive. It's not strong enough to prevent you from having salvation. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, take hope in that. There's still time for you to repent of your sins. It's not too late to be forgiven of your sins. God wants to forgive you of your sins. It doesn't matter what you've done. He's willing, <clears throat> he's willing to forgive you of that sin. So will you repent at this moment, believe in Christ, be one with him? You know, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you also can take hope from this. You can also take hope from this. You can take hope in the great saving and cleansing power of Jesus. Though you may be discouraged because of your sin, because you've been struggling with the same sin for the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, take great hope in the fact that Jesus' saving power, his cleansing power, it doesn't wear off over time. It doesn't lose its ability to keep you saved. You might be tired. You might still struggle, and you might still struggle mightily. And you might be frustrated because you're just looking at your sin, and you're just like, why can I not be free of you? But remember, you're not alone. God has not left you alone. He gives you his spirit so that you can fight. He gives you a church family to walk alongside you, to hold you accountable and to encourage you, saying, yes, you can go on. You can go forward. You're not alone. So take courage. Be reminded of the hope of the gospel and press on. Sometimes I think we think that we've, out-sinned God, that there's no way that he can continue to forgive us or love us because of our sin, and that's not true. Brothers and sisters, there is so much hope in the gospel. He is strong and strong enough to forgive you of your sin, to redeem what is thought unredeemable. There is hope. And there's hope in the gospel. This morning, we've seen how God uses the conversion of Saul and the beginning of Saul's ministry to pave the way for salvation to go to the Gentiles. And now we will look at our third event that paves the way for salvation to go to the Gentiles, and that is the opening of the door, the opening of the door. Luke moves us away from Saul for a little while and brings our attention to Peter. And he tells us here in verse 32 that Peter was traveling through all those regions as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And Lydda is a day's journey about 25 miles away from Jerusalem, and it's on the road from Jerusalem to Joppa. So Jerusalem is right over here, Lydda is right here, and Joppa is over here. Now you're wondering, Peter, why are you traveling over here? Why are you traveling in this area? Well, what we see in Acts 8... Acts 8.40, Philip, after he ministered to the Ethiopian eunuch, he was taken away. He was snatched away by the Holy Spirit, and he was brought to a town right above Gaza. And from that town, he preached from here all the way up to Caesarea, the gospel, to all the cities that he was going through. And so, he was passing through. He was He was teaching all these people about the gospel, about Jesus, and there were people who were being saved. So Peter, he's going through those regions, he's going through those cities, essentially to check Philip's work, to see whether whether the people have been genuinely saved or not. And so as he's going through, he's 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 praying for them and he's giving them the Holy Spirit. So Peter, he's traveling through these regions to authenticate that Jesus has been saving people in that area. And at Lydda... Peter finds a man named Aeneas. He finds a man named Aeneas. We don't have any more information about this man outside of the fact that he had been bedridden for eight years due to paralysis. We don't know how he got paralyzed. We don't know what his ethnicity was. But what we do know is that he had a Greek name. He had a Greek name. Now remember, up until this point, the gospel had not gone into any of the Gentile regions. But Peter, he finds this man, Aeneas, and moved by the Holy Spirit, he turns to the man and he says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Peter is making it absolutely clear to Aeneas and the people around him that Peter himself is not making Aeneas well. It is Jesus Christ who is doing the action through Peter. Jesus heals Aeneas. Jesus heals Aeneas. If he wanted to draw attention to himself, he could have just said, Aeneas, I heal you. Get up and make your bed. But he doesn't. He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And so the immediacy of Aeneas' healing, despite the fact that he had been bedridden for eight years, indicates the validity of Jesus' healing. For eight years, people knew that Aeneas was bedridden because of his paralysis. He was lying there on a cot for eight years. People walking by, they knew that he was paralyzed. This is not fake. This is not staged. This is not a Benny Hinn session. Okay, He's been there for a while. And then Peter comes through and tells him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And immediately, Aeneas is healed. No rehab necessary. No physical therapy necessary. Some of you wish that would happen to you when you get healed, right? That you don't have to go through all those things. I wish that would happen. Aeneas is immediately healed. This is a noteworthy miracle from Jesus. And this reiterates to the people in the region that Jesus Christ truly is Messiah, that he truly has power, that he really is the Lord. He really is the Lord. And so the news is spreading, and the people... As they hear this, they turn, and they believe in Christ. Now, in Joppa, a city 10 miles northeast of Lydda, we are told that there is a disciple there named Tabitha. Now, Tabitha is known by two names. Her Aramaic name, which is Tabitha, and her Greek name, which is Dorcas. She was a believer in Jesus Christ, and that belief in Christ fueled everything that she did. It feel the work that she did. She is described in verse 36 as a woman abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. So Tabitha didn't just do good deeds from time to time or whenever she had free time. She did this continually. It was a pattern of her life. And so during the same time that Peter healed Aeneas, God allows for Tabitha to get sick and die. And because she truly died, the disciples in that area, they took care of her. They got her body ready for burial. However, instead of burying her right away, they laid her body in an upper room. And because little was near Joppa, because they heard of all that Peter had done, the disciples at Joppa, they sent two men to Peter, and they asked him not to delay in coming to them. They had no reason to expect that Peter could raise Tabitha from the dead, because up until this point, Peter has never raise anyone up from the dead. He's just healed people. But they had hope. They had hope that the Lord would do something. And so that's why they go to Peter and they say, please do not delay in coming to us. Peter, he very well could have delayed. He could have said, no, I'm too busy here at Lydda. I can't go over to you. Yeah, I've got sermon prep to do. I've got, I've got people to visit. He had no obligation to go there. You think about it religiously, too. Even though he was a Christian, he still operated through Jewish custom. And so going deeper into Gentile territory would be something that Peter would not be inclined to do. Why would he go deeper into Gentile territory? We're trying to keep ourselves clean before the Lord. Why would we go to a place that could make us unclean? But Peter, he goes anyway. He goes anyway, despite the fact that he has no obligation to go. He gets up immediately, and he goes with these two disciples to the house where Tabitha's body is. He's brought up to the upper room, and the weeping widows were standing there with him, and they were showing him all the tunics, all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. Now notice, Luke just did a switch. If you didn't read carefully enough, you would have just read Dorcas and you just would moved on. Right? But Luke switched her name from Tabitha to Dorcas. And his point is this. His point is this. While she might not be a Gentile, a full-on Gentile, she was still in that Gentile region. She was still heavily influenced by Gentile lifestyle. And so he's reminding us, the readers, That Peter is going out. He's reaching out to someone who is not fully Jewish. right? Because we saw with Paul, with Saul, that he was willing to go interact with the Hellenistic Jews. He was willing to overlook some of those things because he understood that the gospel needs to go out to everybody. And now Peter shows the same thing. Peter shows that he understands that the gospel needs to go out to everyone. Not just the Hebraistic Jews. And so... As these widows, they're showing Peter all that Dorcas did. They're essentially saying, look at how godly she was. Please, there must be something that you can do. And so, verse 40 to 42, Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her. Her alive. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Peter praised the Lord, knowing that, just as was with the case with Aeneas, that Jesus is the one who heals. Jesus is the one who raises people from the dead. And so he prays to the Lord, and then he tells Tabitha to rise, and Jesus, according to his divine purpose, raised her to life so that Jesus, so that Peter can present her alive to the saints. And as a result, her resurrection from the dead becomes known all throughout Joppa, and many believe in the Lord. These two events that we just saw, Aeneas and and Tabitha, God sovereignly uses for his purpose. He sovereignly allowed for Aeneas to be bedridden for eight years so that he could demonstrate through Peter that Jesus has the power to heal physical illness. And God also sovereignly allows for one of the best saints in the region to die so that he can raise her up to show that Jesus has authority over death and he has authority over life. Now, there certainly was suffering and grief in these situations. But what we see from our Lord is that he allows for suffering to happen at times so that Christ can be seen as glorious, so that Christ can be seen as mighty. And the result of these two miracles definitely demonstrate that because In this more Gentile region of Israel, many believe in Jesus when they hear of what Peter was able to do through Christ. What Christ was able to do through Peter, excuse me. And we haven't yet seen a Gentile who was not a Jewish convert come to faith. But Jesus is preparing the way, preparing the ground in the region for salvation to go to Gentiles as they are. Verse 43 kind of seems like an odd place to end the chapter, but Luke does this intentionally in order to set the scene for what is about to happen. It says here that Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. Tanners were looked down upon by many Jews because in order for them to do their craft in order to prepare animal skins for sale they had to touch dead animals. And that made them ceremonially unclean. If you remember anything from the law if you touch dead things you're unclean before the Lord and that's something that Jewish people tried very hard not to do. They didn't want to be unclean before God. Right? But Peter is demonstrating by staying at Simon's house that he's okay with staying with someone who is unclean because Jesus can keep him clean through that. All right, so he understands that, and yet he doesn't fully understand that. The Lord still needs to show Peter that the gospel must go out to Gentiles. And despite the fact that Peter needs more convincing of this, we'll see that next week in Acts 10, the stage is set. The road that leads to the gospel, going out to the gospel, has been paved. The right man for the mission, Saul, has been selected, has been converted, and he awaits the next step in the mission as he preaches to those in his hometown. Peter paves that path before Saul, kind of as a forerunner. He opens that door for Gentiles to hear the gospel as he willingly goes out to Gentile regions of is- the Gentile regions of Israel and willingly heals those who are Greek-influenced, willingly shares the gospel to those who are Greek-influenced, showing them that the great power of Christ can save them. This morning, we focus much of our attention on Saul because he is the unique servant that Jesus chooses to represent Him to the Gentiles, and though Saul is an important figure in the Bible, and rightly so, what we have seen in our study this morning is that God, that though God uses human agents, human representatives, to advance His kingdom plans, He is still the one who works all things together in order to do so. Saul will be the apostle to the Gentiles, the one who will suffer for the sake of Christ to prove that the gospel must go forth. But Jesus is the one who saves and redeems Saul, turning Saul into the useful instrument who, instead of being bent towards preventing the gospel from being spread, has the same passion to spread the gospel even further. Jesus is the one who sows the acceptability sows the seed of acceptability of Gentile salvation in a critical church leader so that the rest of the church will eventually see that the gospel needs to go to the Gentiles as they are. They don't need to convert to Judaism in order to be saved. Jesus, he paves the way for the gospel to continue forth. And while we have to wait till next week to see how that breakthrough to the Gentiles happens, we can continue to meditate and be thankful to the Lord for all that he did in order to bring the gospel to us. Without Saul, without the conversion of Saul, one of the keys to getting the gospel out of Israel will be missing. Without that zeal of Saul, without his desire to make sure that everyone understands right doctrine, the church might not have survived. Everything that God has done here sets the stage for everything future. And that's why we have to be thankful we can be thankful for Acts 9 and Acts 10. Because without Acts 9 and Acts 10, none of us here, except if you're Jewish, get saved. Without Acts 9 and Acts 10, none of us have our sins forgiven. But because God sovereignly ordained for Acts 9 and Acts 10 to occur, we have hope. We have forgiveness of sin. He's done all of that on his own power. He's guaranteed that. For that, we can continue to meditate and give thanks to the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are so gracious to us in giving us your words that we can see how you've brought us to the point in history where we are. As we reflect back on our roots, on our origin, May we come away with great thankfulness to you for how you've set everything up to bring the gospel forward, to preserve your word, to preserve sound doctrine so that the church can continue, the church can continue to persevere, and that we might be able to hear the same gospel message that was preached in the beginning of the church now. And so that we, having heard the gospel, can go forth and continue the mission, continue to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, that the forgiveness of sins is possible, that there is a way back to be with you, and it is all through Jesus Christ. We're grateful for this. We pray for those here who are not saved, that we pray that, Lord, you would help them to see how much you love them, how much you desire for them to understand how much you love them, how much you desire for them to be saved from their sin, and we pray, Lord, that you would impress that upon their hearts, help them to see how much you desire for them to turn away from sin, and instead of being objects of wrath, be objects of love and affection family. For those of us here who are saved, we pray that you would invigorate us, strengthen us, give us courage to proclaim the truth. May you be honored in the way that we live our lives. Help us to just see how important being one with Christ is, so that when we go forth, when we proclaim your name, not only through our words, but through our actions, people can see that Jesus Christ really does have a saving power. We're thankful to you for everything, Lord. We pray that you would receive much glory and much honor. It's your son that we pray. Amen.